Do Entrepreneurs Help Create Peace? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Andrew Smith. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Andrew Smith. Andrew is a senior lecturer and associate professor of international business at the University of Liverpool Management School. His academic research straddles the boundaries of business and economic history on the one hand and strategy and entrepreneurship on the other. He was trained at Queen's University and the University of Western Ontario in Canada and the University of London in the UK. Andrew has published social scientific articles in such journals as Business History, Journal of Management Studies, Business History Review, Enterprise and Society, and Journal of Management Inquiry. An idea important to Andrew is that management academics have an obligation to use their research to make local communities, nations, and the world a better place. Andrew, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you on, Andrew. So as you know, we base each of our episodes on a question and just go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our general question today is, do entrepreneurs create peace? And we have some general concepts to discuss, but also a tour through history to explore so let's start with one concept and then go from there. So right from the top, um, your aforementioned paper mentions capitalist peace theory at a high level. So that's going to be the basis of a lot of our discussion today. Can you explain what capitalist peace theory is and what some of the basic tenets of it are? Okay, capitalist peace theory is in some ways a very old concept. In other ways, it's a new concept. So we can trace the origins of capitalist peace theory back to the Enlightenment. So for much of human history, people have assumed that wars are recurrent and they're like the seasons. Sometimes you'll have an era of peace, so then you'll have an era of war. It's almost inevitable that there's going to be bloodshed between communities and nations. And there's nothing much we as human, human beings can do to prevent that. And then in the 18th century, a group of thinkers who are linked to the emerging classical liberal movement said, Prevailing wisdom is wrong. That human beings can make the world more peaceful by promoting commercial intercourse between nations. And the basic insight here is that if you're trading with individuals who are on the other side of a national frontier, it may be that you have allegiances to different kings or princes or or religious leaders, but you're going to get to know the person on the other side of the border. They'll become your friend. And more importantly, self-interest will be harnessed to induce you to fight hard for peace, to be a force for peace. You may have limited voice in the political sphere, but you have some degree of agency. You've got some influence on whether or not your country, whether it's ruled by a king or an elected government, will go to war with a neighboring state. And if you are a merchant who's signing lots of contracts with merchants on the other side of the border, you have a vested interest in peace and the continuation of peaceful relations between your respective nations that a self-sufficient farmer or merchant who only does business with people with the same nationality, you might see people with the same color passport today, although they didn't really have passports as we think of it in this period. You have a vested interest in peace and its preservation that you would not otherwise have. And so 
thinkers, most notably Montesquieu, traced the declining incidence of warfare and the declining severity of warfare to the growth in previous centuries of commerce. So these are writers who were uh, publishing papers and sharing ideas in the 18th century. This is the great really at the very beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, but several centuries into what might be called the Commercial Revolution. So you'd seen the growth of not just long-distance commerce, but commerce within Europe. French people trading with British people, people in different German states trading with each other, commodities from the New World coming in. And you have an emerging merchant class, or the bourgeoisie, as you might, uh, uh, might, might, might call it. And these thinkers also observe that, well, wars were still happening. There are great wars. Canadians will be familiar with the Seven Years' War when there was the Battle of the Plains of Abraham and so forth. Wars were more civilized than they had been previously. Wars are happening less frequently. And you don't massacre all the prisoners. You take the prisoner and then you parole. So there's been a softening of, of manners or mores. And the idea is that commerce softens people. It makes them less warlike, less bellicose, maybe a bit more feminine. That's their gender terminology, but it makes warriors into, into business people. So that's the basic origins of capitalist peace theory. And it becomes incredibly influential in the 19th century. So if you look at debates in the 19th century about how do we ensure that we aren't invaded? There are two schools of thought, or in the paper I call them paradigms, mm-hmm. that are at work. The ideas of Montesquieu and those Enlightenment thinkers I've just mentioned uh, become mainstream, and they begin to be acted upon by political actors. And these are typically business people who are in politics. They've got a very strong classical liberal orientation. They're the guys who want to eliminate all tariffs, uh, all government-created barriers to mutually beneficial economic exchange between individuals individuals within nations and across across nations. And then there are those who voice the older paradigm and say the best defense is a good offense. If we don't want our country to be invaded, let's fortify our frontiers. And you see these debates about how to achieve peace in Britain, in France, in every Western European country and in the liberal countries of North America and, and indeed South America as well. There's this global debate about how to bring about, bring about peace. And this theory of capitalist peace is resurrected in the 20th century by various academics. And at the very end of the 20th century, it begins to be articulated by political scientists and economists. Now, their way of testing whether or not capitalist peace theory is true involves doing lots of regression analysis. So you get data on relations between between dozens of different countries, and you figure out, okay, are these countries at war in any given year? And let's determine what predicts whether or not those countries will go to war. And they've accumulated a lot of evidence that when countries trade with each other, they tend not to go to war. So that's one part of the academic literature on capitalist peace theory. Now, I'm a qualitative management researcher. I work in a business school, but I don't use lots of 
numbers to understand what's going on, like talking to business people or if the business people in question are dead, like going and looking at the, the records they've left behind for us. And so I wanted to investigate in a case study how exactly entrepreneurs go about fighting the militarists and promoting peace, how they take this idea of capitalist peace theory and make it a reality. And Canadian history in the middle of the 19th century is a wonderful case study for exploring how the capitalist peace was built by entrepreneurs. Indeed. So that's a somewhat long-winded introduction to capitalist peace theory, but uh, uh, I think it's necessary to understand the development of this way of thinking about Oh, absolutely. I think that was a, a great overview. And I think it's very important that you tease that all out because it sets the stage for uh, what I wanted to do next was actually jump into the case study you were talking about towards the end of your overview there. So um, your paper specifically talks about capitalist peace theory and essentially uses and focuses on a case study. Uh, there was an era where there was a preservation of peace between Canada and the US during the American Civil War time, which was uh, your paper notes this time that you look at is 1861 to 1871. Before we get into some of the facts that happened there and some of the specific questions I have, I'd actually like you to first sort of paint the overall picture of the economic situation in each country, like between Canada and the United States at the time. For those unfamiliar, what kind of things were being traded? What did the Dominion look like to the north? What was going on in the south? Just set the scene, if you will, before we actually get into what happened. Okay, well, just a quick point, uh, to be a bit of a quibble. At the beginning of the 1860s, the Dominion of Canada doesn't yet exist. Correct. Right. However, the various British North American provinces had a free trade agreement in the middle of the 1850s with the United States. And this allowed for the free interchange of commodities between the U.S. and, and British, British North America. And the reciprocity treaty ushered in a period of tremendous prosperity. So timber, wheat... The other things that British North America was good at producing, those were exported in considerable quantities to the United to the United States. So there's an increasing web of commercial inter interdependence linking people in British North America with folks across the border in the northern United States. Right. And I guess it's also important to highlight again that because although when we think of Canada now, we can look at the map and see the second largest landmass. When we're talking about Canada at that time, we're kind of we're essentially talking about that central part with Quebec and Canada. I mean, of course, the, the, not precisely, but I mean, it's, it's definitely a smaller range of thinking when we talk about what Canada was right before Confederation. Yes. So, so it's been joked that in the middle of the 19th century, Western alienation began at Young Street in Toronto. <laughs> okay, that's that's where Western Canada is. So the province of Canada includes what's now southern Ontario, southern Quebec. Uh, other areas with broadly similar social and political systems would include New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. So these are territories in which by the middle of the 19th century, European settlement is a process that's largely been uh, being completed. These territories have internal self-government in the British Empire. So Britain is responsible for foreign policy and defense. But most other areas of jurisdiction under, are under the control of a legislature that's directly elected by, by uh, an electorate that is fairly broad. Obviously, it's just men who can vote, but most men could satisfy the property qualifications. So you have a broadly democratic political system in the British North American colonies. Now, what's now Western Canada, the territories of the Hudson's Bay Company, very, very different society. Okay. 
uh, that really doesn't enter into the into the paper that we're we're talking about. Although I would hasten to add the capitalist peace theory can certainly be used to understand the relationships of different ethnic groups in that part of what becomes Canada. But that's not what, what we're talking about today. Right. For perhaps another episode, who knows? Um, but so so exactly. So moving forward from that setting then, um, you, and again, you just mentioned that, you know, Canada and America's trade and economic relationship was strengthening and there was a lot more ties and trade happening between uh, the north the, the, in, the, in the British uh, colonies and the territories with, with the northern states. Um, but ultimately, the story that you tell is one of uh, tensions arising and potential danger happening between the two countries and then um, how those tensions were sort of uh, leveled. So why don't we first talk about what kind of political and military tensions were uh, well, actually, I guess I should say firstly happening in the United States that then sort of spilled over and created sort of that feedback effect in Canada. What were what was going through the minds of uh, political and military operators at that time that sort of we could say charts the rise of the t- potential tensions between these two countries? Okay, the first thing that we need to remember is that the War of 1812 is within living memory for many people. So the idea of, a, of an American invasion of what becomes Canada isn't a remote possibility for people alive in Toronto and Montreal. If you remember, the last time American soldiers came north. Now, since 1815, there had been tensions between the British Empire, of which Canada is, of course, part, and the United States. There had been war scares or rumors of military movements. There had been disputes over territory. The newspapers had speculated, well, maybe this would lead to uh, to war. Uh, But generally speaking, 1840s and 1850s, relationships, the relationship between the British Empire and the United States was was largely peaceful. There was never a point when it appeared that the countries were on the brink of war. There were some territorial disputes, but nothing too major. It's a gross simplification, but I'm I'm trying to tell uh, a comprehensible story here. The American Civil War breaks out, and immediately European countries, including Britain, are confronted with the issue of how to preserve neutrality. Does Britain want to recognize the southern United States? No one in Britain, almost no one in British North America, liked slavery or or liked uh, the Confederate States of America. But there's also a lingering dislike of the United States, now represented by the North in in the Civil War. There's a sort of vestigial anti-American. There are people of United Empire loyalist ancestry in what becomes Ontario who just hate the United States. And this faction will always support any measure designed to strengthen the military protection that British North Americans think they have against against the the U.S. And there are other people in British North America who are very strongly pro-American. And if they had a a chance to vote in a referendum, they probably would have voted to become part of the U.S. That's not what the mainstream is. Mainstream political opinion there says, well, let's hope for peace. Uh, Let's hope that there isn't a diplomatic breach between Britain and the U.S., In the first few months of the Civil War, it appears that that's going to uh, uh, continue to be the case. Britain will remain neutral in the Civil War, and so British North Americans don't need to worry too much. However, there's a diplomatic incident that is on the high seas. There's a ship that's flying the Union Jack, 
traveling across the Atlantic. It is stopped by the U.S. Navy, and they take two envoys of the Confederate government who are en route to Europe offshore. And this is an affront to British sovereignty, Britain's the mistress of the seas, and so forth. And Britain says, unless you deliver those two individuals safely back into our hands and let them continue their journey to Britain, this will be an act of war. And keep in mind, this is a period which we don't yet have instantaneous communication. There isn't a working transatlantic telegraph, so it takes days for messages to go back and forth. So there's a, a winter in which reasonable observers predicted that an American invasion was imminent. The Americans might open a second front in the Civil War. It's called the Trent Crisis after the ship that was an issue in this uh, diplomatic incident. Now, ultimately, the Americans give up the two Confederate envoys. President Lincoln is reputed to have said, one war at a time is enough. And so the, the crisis de-escalates. Uh, but during the crisis, when people thought that the Yankees are coming, vast numbers of British troops have been rushed on the fastest steamships of the era to British North America. They're immediately dispatched by trains to points along the frontier. And then after the crisis passes, there is planning for what happens during the next crisis. Okay, how can we strengthen our defenses? So you've got some old stone fortresses. They're decades old. Uh, the old old forts in the War of 1812, let's strengthen them. So I would imagine some of your listeners have been to Fort Henry in Kingston, which is in some ways a wonderful monument to this period of anxiety in Canadian-American relations. We thought, you know, a war is, is imminent, so let's build this massive fortress right next to the border to protect uh, what's now eastern, East Ontario. And then Canadians have a conversation about how do we best protect ourselves from the Americans. And so one faction says, we need to militarize. We need to create a Canadian army. So Canada was primarily reliant on British regular troops for defense at this at this time. They had a militia, uh, we might call them reservists or, or weekend warriors, a very ineffective force with a very small budget. Canadians in the 1850s, 1860s are small government people. They hate paying taxes. As a result, the military is quite small. After the Trent crisis, there is pressure placed on the Canadian government from both Britain and the domestic public opinion to create a proper Canadian military. So a militia bill is introduced into the Canadian Parliament to provide for the funding of what's basically a Canadian army. We're going to have more fortresses, buy lots more guns, lay in stocks of gunpowder. That's one option for protecting British North America. However, there's a group of entrepreneurs who are classical liberals, and they're associated with the grouping in the Canadian Parliament that eventually becomes the Liberal Party. And in this era, the Canadian liberals very much were still classical, classical liberals. And they say, no, this is the wrong strategy. We've read her Montesquieu. We've read Voltaire. We've read these 18th century thinkers and their 19th century popularizers who tell us that commercial exchange between nations is the right way to ensure peace. So let's not militarize the frontier. That's going to be provocative. The best way to bring about peace 
is to have continued free exchange between the people of British North America, business people on the other side of the border. That's what's going to keep us safe. And there's this recurring debate that goes up to the early 1870s about how to ensure the safety of British North America. And, and further to that point, I actually pull a quote from the paper um, where, where you talk about sort of these two factions, and I, I really enjoyed this. So um, especially because, you know, it looks like that uh, you found some notes from the Montreal Trade Review, which is a trade publication, which is awesome because that's right to the source, right? So the quote from the paper goes, in a May 1865 editorial on the defense of Canada, the Montreal Trade Review argued that a war fought would be a disaster for Canadians, even if Britain ultimately emerged technically victorious. And that's actually something very interesting to me, the end of that quote, because we see the divergence of the commercial interest and the state interest here. That is to say, hey, fine, British troops come here, we erect forts, even if we win whatever war is going to happen, and we're technically victorious. I like that uh, phrasing. This would still be a disaster. And, and, I, and I really like that point to show that there really was sort of a separate commercial mind of that faction. At the As you said, there was other factions, and we'll get to that in a second. But at least in that faction, they had a separate commercial mind about this. Like, I don't care about this war. Even if you're victorious, this will be a disaster. What the heck? Yeah, absolutely. And there was planning and uh, by British military officers that is reported in the press that says, well, if in the event of a war, the American troops probably temporarily take control of what's now southern Ontario. Yeah, they probably burned Toronto to the ground. But don't worry, we'd be able to get reinforcements in from Britain and eventually push them back to back to the to, to the border. But if you're a property owner in Toronto, this mm-hmm. isn't very comforting to hear. And if you're a business person whose model, whose business model involves exporting goods to the United States, then even a discussion of such a war and preparation for it is anathema to you. Mm. So as you say, there's tension between a, a commercial mind, so bourgeois virtues at work here, and a mi- older militarist mindset, what I might call it a leftover aristocratic mindset that is pervasive in some parts of the Canadian political spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and one thing I pull, pulled from the paper, and of course, we can't just simply generalize all the time, but I, I found it very interesting, the dynamic between those two minds, especially since the Canadians as a, as a people, if you will, at the time, as you said, living in areas like Toronto, actually owning property here, actually conducting business here, are literally treated with a fully once removed military mentality being shipped, as you said, to their soil to basically say, hey, this is a British territory. We might need to erect forts here. Meanwhile, there's a guy up the street just with his house or whatever business he has going, wait a minute, I live here. I have a vested interest in keeping the peace here. Whatever's going on in London is a whole different mindset. I I found that even geographical difference interesting because uh, today, if, you know, in the United States, for example, we're going to talk about, um, you know, political differences when it comes to war, for example, I'm being very general here just to make the point, you might be disagreeing with with your neighbor. But but in this case, we actually have a situation where sort of that Canadian mentality itself, beyond just being a commercial mentality, is different than the, the British Empire mentality. So that divergence is very interesting to me, too. Yeah, and I would say that for the last 200 years or so, many Canadians, not so much the articulate elite who leave lots of documents for historians to study, but Mm. many Canadians intuitively sort of embrace 
uh, a dumbed-down version of capitalist peace theory because it fits with their lived experiences. So it's not just relations between Canada and the United States. We can also think of relations between the two major linguistic groups. They've been largely peaceful because people of different groups have been trading extensively with each, each other. So I think for many Canadians, the idea that trade equals peace has long resonated. These are people who've perhaps never heard of Montesquieu, but the idea comes from, from Montesquieu indirectly and it, it fits how, how they feel about the world. And we see that in the 21st century, we see that in the 19th century. I think in talking about the British mentality, we need to draw in a bit of social class analysis here. So I think it'd be a huge mistake to say that British people as a whole in the 1860s were extremely militarist. Mm, right. Actually, the capitalist peace mentality was extremely widespread in Britain, particularly the commercial middle classes, the, the business business classes, and some members of the old aristocracy also buy into this, into this idea. In the middle of the 19th century, there's a very active peace movement in Britain that is closely tied to the free trade movement, the classical liberal movement, small government, uh, John Bright is a Quaker businessman, industrialist, who's a leading advocate of capitalist peace theory in Britain. So is his political associate, Richard Cobden, a British businessman who had extensive investments in the United States. So here we see a confluence of his pecuniary interests. He's got a vested interest in the country he's not going to war, because that would ruin his investments. Also, he's a deep-seated ideological commitment to demilitarization. And so within Britain, there are entrepreneurs who are saying, this is crazy. We should not go to war with the United States. They're a fantastic customer of us. Right. And so these people joined forces with the Canadian entrepreneurs in trying to shut down discussion of the remilitarization of Canada-U.S. border. And they're working with the Canadian entrepreneurs, and with American entrepreneurs who also disagree with militarization as part of a coalition that's going to bring about peace and demilitarization through trade. Mm -hmm. and, and right before our break here, I just want to flip to the other side, as I said I would, because you talked about different factions here. Um, I'm going to pull in another quote from your paper, because on the other hand, there were commercial interests that were essentially proponents of state spending in the military, just to sum it up generally. So the quote here from the paper you say, and your co-author, there was indeed a section of the Canadian bourgeoisie that supported war and other measures designed to militarize Canadian society in the Canada-U.S. border. Several groups of businessmen in Canada had a vested interest in increased military spending. In garrison towns such as Montreal and Kingston, British military spending was very important to the local economy since the presence of so many soldiers created demand for local businesses. And I found this quote very fascinating, not only on its own, which is why I noted here, but it, I think it also ties very nicely into points you made at the beginning of our conversation where you, you sort of talk about the difference in interest between more of, and, and consciousness, I should say, between more of like a local consciousness and an actual cross-border one. Whereas here, there are clearly some business folks and, and others that agreed that, hey, my, my business in Kingston is, is bumping if you send more troops here to eat more food, for example, versus people that had sort of a larger radar of commercial interest that looked at the, the bigger picture, if you will, or the cross-border picture. Absolutely. So today we might use the term military industrial complex and mm -hmm. thinking about the small minority of business people who have a vested interest, maybe not in war, but in preparation for mm. war. 
We see something analogous taking place in British North America in this period. Absolutely. And I think that's actually an excellent time to take our break. So we'll do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Andrew Smith today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind about the show to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Christopher McDonald, Randy T. Simmons, and Travis Smith. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Andrew Smith today. So, Andrew, I think the first half of our conversation was great. We talked about capitalist peace theory. We dove into a good old Canadian case study and really teased that out and got into the what was happening at the time during the, the Civil War era in the United States and, and what kind of tensions were happening between, uh, which was essentially the Canadian territories to the north and, and, and the United States government of the north right below them. How did this all end? We didn't put a cap on the story. So now that we returned from our break, all this was happening what what would you say was the culmin- point of culmination where everything we, we know, okay, we've avoided war? Right. So I think our plot ends in the early 1870s. So keep in mind, after 1868, Britain has a government that is very strongly infused by people with classical liberal sympathies. Not everyone in their cabinet is a classical liberal who thinks like Richard Cobden or or John Bright, but there are a lot of people who look in the world through that, look at the world through that sort Mm. of of lens. And while people within the new Canadian government, 1867, we've got Confederation, John McDonald becomes prime minister. There's certainly people within McDonald's government who want to militarize Canadian society not just to protect against the United States, but also they think it would be inherently good for Canada to have have a big army, to have fortresses. So there's an element within McDonald's government that is is very, very pro-military. And they've got a a plan for a vast Canadian army uh, to, uh, to continue to spend on armaments. And as long as the Conservatives are in power in London... There's a chance of this proposal actually being implemented in some form. But then you have a liberal government in Britain, and they push for a very different solution to the outstanding diplomatic grievances between Britain and the United States. So there are a whole cluster of problems in Anglo-American relations in the 1860s. Some of them relate to Canada's relationship with the United States, but most of them relate to what Britain did during the Civil War. And so Britain has a dilemma. Do we sort of appease the Americans, sort of make the Americans happy, and then try and move beyond this period of tension? Or do we continue to prepare for war? And that has direct implications for what the Canadian government is going to do. Ultimately, the strategy that the British government adopts is one of pacification and demilitarization. So they decide very controversially they are going to withdraw almost all British troops from British North America. Yeah, we'll leave a garrison in Halifax, but but Fort Henry, all of those other military establishments are going to be left vacant to show the Americans, hey, we aren't a threat. 
Now, there are many reasons why this course of action is pursued by the British government. But Canadian entrepreneurs played a role in the genesis of this policy that until recently wasn't well understood. And there are Canadian entrepreneurs who've got deep connections in Britain, in the city of London, the financial district, also lots of connections in the United States. So they're very well positioned to be brokers, to go back and forth, to speak to people behind the scenes, to arrange a diplomatic solution. And ultimately, it's a treaty signed in Washington that resolves the outstanding grievances and facilitates the demilitarization of the Canada-U.S. border. And, And then we have a period of several decades in which tensions between Canada and the United States are very muted. There's a tiny Canadian army. People stop worrying about invasion from the United States. Now, there certainly are people in Ottawa, people in uniform, who well into the 20th century want to plan for a war between the British Empire and the United States. But they're very much in the minority. Eventually, they almost become a, a, a laughing a laughing stock. Capitalist peace is built in British North America from the 1860s onwards, thanks to the efforts of the entrepreneurs who were discussed and, and it's not celebrated in our paper. So that's how the story ends. Of course, we can continue the story up, up to the present day because in my view, capitalist peace theory is deeply relevant to understanding 20th century history and what's going on in the world right now. I was just going to say that's an excellent actually place to segue and connect into what our next series of uh, thoughts and questions is going to be because ultimately I think I'd like to move us from sort of the 1860s, if you will, up to the 2020s. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of you know, there's there's no shortage of issues we could talk about, no shortage of things we can we can touch on. It'd probably take us hours and hours. So one angle I sort of wanted to enter into connecting these thoughts to our modern situation is some of the narrative around um, pretty much COVID-19 and trade, because there's a lot of countries that are genuinely, you know, and I'll, I'll give them the benefit of that, a lot of them with good intentions, let's say politicians, uh, calling for less reliance on global trade and more direct domestic investment, right? They're, they're citing things like, well, look what happened to the supply chains. They, they say supply chains are great globally. However, they get very fragile. Look what happens. So is it worth, um, you know, putting more investment domestically or trying to encourage some specific goods or services or whatever to be within countries rather than always relying externally? Now, when I think of that narrative, which is sort of separate from other foreign policy issues that are happening now, I can't help but think that there's also in the background, as for instance, as of today, we think of Russia and Ukraine and so on, about other sort of tensions that are arising. These things might seem separate, but my thought to enter this part of the conversation is basically, do we then create sort of two trains that are going to crash into each other in the future? If on the one hand, for reasons separate from military. Let's just say it's COVID-19. We talk about reducing trade, but on the other hand, we still, of course, see we're we're living in a world full of political tensions. Will we put ourselves on a course in your mind to some sort of disaster if we all start rushing to this idea of, I don't know, I'm being silly, but, you know, got to grow bananas in Canada or something like that, you know? Autarky. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So COVID-19 has certainly accelerated deglobalization. Within the academic community, there's a lot of debate about to what extent the world is deglobalizing. So after about 1990, we experienced 
extensive globalization, partly that's facilitated by technology, the fax machines, later the internet, that made it easier for people to create across borders. But the main thing that's driving globalization is political change, China embracing a form of capitalism, trade agreements among the industrial democracies, the creation of the EU, NAFTA, and so forth. And since the 2008 financial crisis appeared to undermine the legitimacy of liberal perspectives, and particularly since 2016, there has been accumulating evidence that globalization is actually being reversed. It's not because the technologies that facilitated globalization have been uninventive. It's all about the geopolitics. And in my view, what's really driving the observed movement towards reimposing trade barriers that have been dismantled decades ago is the resurgence of an anti-liberal nationalist mentality. Mm -hmm. So let's trace things back to first causes, to ideologies, to ways of, of thinking about the world that we've seen in recent in recent years. So you've mentioned supply chains being a bit under strain during the pandemic. So people say, oh, we can't rely on the Chinese for our N95 masks. They have to be produced here uh, domestic, domestically. Uh, now, there's a lot of academic research to say, actually, the argument that dismantling global supply chains will uh, increase your security of supply is, is is rubbish. But of course, that solid research doesn't really enter into the policy right. discussion. What's driving it is this desire to revert to a pre-globalization world that's informed by what I would regard as a very anti-liberal mentality. We see this at both mm -hmm. ends of the political spectrum in every Western country. And as someone who believes that trade between countries, maybe trade between countries are, are potentially adversaries in a military sense, is important in preserving peace. I'm, I'm quite disturbed by this movement towards deglobalization. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you mentioned the word mentality towards the end of that answer there, and that ties back into our, what we were discussing before, right? Where, especially in your example with Canadians in the 1860s, thinking themselves, at least a lot of them thinking themselves more of like, as a commercial people, just trying to do their own thing in this area and not needing all this other nonsense about forts and, and, uh, and soldiers going back and forth. I think, as you said, we see on the quote left and quote right of political spectrums in many different Western countries, all sort of adopting more nationalist speak, if you will, when it comes to trade and, and things like that. So I think that does speak to as well, you know, a troubling tendency of, of maybe the general public as well, sort of thinking of their identity in the world as less of just like, you know, an individual or a family doing their thing with whoever, more liberal sense of, of, of the things into more of, um, you know, what's good for Canada is good for Canada, what's good for America is good for America, and so on and so forth. So that social trend, putting even aside the political trend, I think is also a bit troubling as well. Yeah, absolutely. that's why I'm passionate about talking to people about this paradigm, the capitalist peace or liberal paradigm that informed the thought and action of so many Canadian entrepreneurs in the 1860s, because I think it's deeply relevant to understanding how we can have a better world, a more secure world in the in the present. Mm -hmm. And what there's an objection, I, mean, I, I don't believe this myself, but I mean, it, it does come up a lot. There's an objection that people often throw 
throw out to folks like us that would be proponents of this, for example, and, and say things like, okay, well, yeah, you know, trading between allies is one thing, but, uh, you know, uh, why would we, for example, they may frame it like this. Um, I, it is, I'm doing it simply, but they may frame it in such a way, but why would we trade with and enrich our enemies, for example? We've seen what's happened with China, where although we have, quote, free trade, quote unquote, in many cases with them, uh, really, because the government's so involved in the economy there, they've managed to harness trade in such a way that benefits, of course, the private interests, no doubt, uh, but also the way the state wants to develop. So some people summarize this idea of as, yes, we're enriching people, but we're also enriching our enemies, when someone throws that kind of thing out there, what are your thoughts? We're selling rope to the communists who are going to hang us. That's what one American politician said mm. about trade with China and these potential adversaries. It's certainly true that people like me who have a liberal internationalist outlook and strongly favor globalization are less optimistic and somewhat more nuanced in our advocacy of the trade makes for peace thesis than was the case 20 or so years ago. Mm. So when China joins the world trading system in the early, early 2000s, there is a bipartisan consensus of the United States and in other Western countries that allowing the Chinese to export to our nations and, and to trade more, more closely with us is going to ultimately make them more capitalistic and, and democratic and, uh, and, and peaceful. Now, maybe a few data points have accumulated recently when we look just at the U.S.-China relationship that kind of undermines the plausibility of that theory, which animated Bill Clinton and George Bush and, and basically everyone 20 years ago the West thought that was right. But that doesn't change the fact there's still overwhelming evidence to support the theory that trade makes relations between nations more peaceful. Maybe it doesn't 100% guarantee that there won't be war between nations. Maybe it doesn't, in every single case, ensure that the less liberal or less democratic or less capitalist country will trend in the right direction, trend towards liberalism. The data point that many people point to in trying to argue against capitalist peace theory is the extensive trade that existed between Britain and Germany on the eve of the First World War. We can point to these anecdotes, but the overwhelming evidence suggests that the capitalist peace theory account of why the world is more peaceful than it has been in the past is largely true. It's true more than 95% of the time. It's true enough for that to be the basis of our of our actions uh, today. And as I said earlier, I'm very disturbed by the growth of this idea that, well, maybe free trade among military allies is okay, but we can't be trading with our potential enemies because it's guaranteed to turn adversary nations into enemies or turn potential adversaries mm -hmm. into, into, into definite uh, definite opponent. So I would strongly encourage policymakers in Western countries to continue to allow for liberal exchange between their citizens and the citizens of non-democratic countries, China, Russia, and so forth, mm -hmm. because that's mm -hmm. what's going to make us more secure in long term. I suppose another way of looking at it for sure 
is that it's better to have more or multiple interests at play rather than just a state interest at play with, with, with a potential adversary. Precisely. Now, it's hard for us to tell how exactly policy is made in Beijing or in the Kremlin, but as from what we can detect looking from the outside, there's evidence that the capitalist class that has emerged in those countries as a result of their participation in the global capitalist system is a restraining force. It is a force for peace. So there are people around Vladimir Putin, people around the Chinese leadership who are saying, let's not antagonize the Western countries too much. And we have a situation that I think is analogous to the relationship between the British Empire and the United States in the 1860s, even though the political systems are quite, quite different. And by trying to crack down, as it were, on trade between the West and China, trade between Western countries and Russia, we're only going to weaken the liberal entrepreneurial pro-peace factions within those adversary nations. So we terrible policy blunder on our part to listen to the economic nationalists mm-hmm. and suppress mutually beneficial trade between individuals who happen to live in Western countries and individuals who happen to live in countries that have less liberal political orders. Mm-hmm. Drilling a little a little further into that point then, because we talk, I talked, I sort of mentioned it's better to have different and multiple interests at play rather than just the state interest, for example, which is, I think, undoubtedly true. Um, but is it especially today when there's so many more industries tied in with the state and the state is much more involved in the economy in many countries and, you know, technology, even just like you can trace how basic technology companies eventually chain up to vested interest. And in, as you termed it before, and I agree with the military industrial complex, of course, the world exists in many shades of grays and there's lots of nuance. So the clean dividing lines are not what I'm after here. But I guess my question is ultimately, do you think it's important that the classical liberal does their best to differentiate between sort of the entrepreneurial and truly private commercial interest mentality um, and differentiate that from like serious corporate and state interests when they can join together and share a vested interest. Military industrial complex is one example. Absolutely. Absolutely. So liberals of all sorts need to promote the idea that you're Default assumption in dealing with a citizen of a so-called adversary or enemy state is that this person probably isn't a supporter of the regime. This guy's just an entrepreneur. Let's do business with him, innocent until proven guilty. That's got to be your attitude going forward. And we need to to promote this fundamentally individualistic idea. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And on on the flip side, domestically, I, I would think, and you let me know if you agree that you'd probably say that you know it's important for the classical liberal to also you know differentiate what they view as you know quote good business versus and truly private business in our countries as well versus ones that might have the vested interest in the state because we can think of companies that make billions of dollars off of preparing for war. I think that was a very good term the way you put it. Maybe not necessarily war, but definitely preparation for uh, a war, whether it's uh, vehicles or, or certain technologies or whatever else. I think in some cases, some folks are too quick to look at any commercial or quote unquote private activity as, as a good thing. Whereas I think in this case as well, it's important to differentiate from the tri- private commercial interests, the bourgeois values, if you will, with uh, other you know, companies and interests that are deeply tied with what could be adversarial agendas with other countries. Absolutely. Just because you're in the private sector, just because you're an entrepreneur, doesn't mean that you will necessarily support 
piece. There is a small subset of any country's population of entrepreneurs that has a vested interest in militarism. We might call these people rent-seeking entrepreneurs of Mm. a, a very particular type. We need to watch out for them and not fall into the mindless adulation of business and say, well, any business is worthy of respect because there are indeed firms and entrepreneurs whose entire business model involves getting in bed with the state, in bed with militarists, in bed with uh, those who want to increase rather than decrease uh, antagonisms between nations. Absolutely. And and the final question I want to ask before we head to our formal and official wrap-up is, is, is a very Canadian one, and I think that's okay, because especially given the flavor episode today, I find, and of course you tell me if you disagree, but some Canadians are now saying, and there seems to be a vibe that they're a little, not ashamed is the word, but but they're a little disappointed that, you know, over many decades, Canada has been a little shy about its military history. There is a movement of people talking about, we need to really beef this up. You know, our military history isn't as celebrated or played up as compared to some countries like the U.S. Um, you know, and as, as our discussion shows today, Canada's history is also very heavily about commerce and being a middle power in, in some ways. I mean, it's, of course, I think an, an obvious answer of, of yes from you, but I want to hear a little bit more of your thoughts, Tease, out on do you think we should be focusing on that part instead, the fact that we should celebrate that we have a large commercial history that has promoted things like peace in the story we've talked about today? Yeah. So I would say to people who pr- present the idea that the peace we have today is exclusively the result of past military victories to reflect on the relationship between Canada and the United States. Canadians are very secure because their, what's effectively their sole neighbor, is a peaceful nation with respect to them, has no intention of invading them. Now, the United States is not deterred by a massive Canadian army from crossing the border. No. Wars become unthinkable in North America, at least between Canada and the United States, because the countries are so integrated economically and culturally and, and through family ties, it all follows from commercial, uh, commercial exchange. And that's the main reason that you as a Canadian are safe, are almost certainly not going to die in a war, are likely to die in your bed of peaceful, natural causes. It's because Relations between Canada and the United States have become harmonious through commercial exchange. Now, yes, we do owe a debt to those of us, those in our society who fought, uh, particularly in the Second World War, to protect us. I'm not going to pretend that capitalist peace theory is everywhere and always the right answer, gives us the best recipe for uh uh, for guaranteeing peace. I think it would have been foolish for Canadians and people in other Western democracies in the autumn of 1939 to have said, we just need a free trade agreement with Hitler, and then the Germans will have a vested interest in not going to war with us. Sometimes you do need a military response to external threats. But the main reason that people in Canada and other Western countries today enjoy an historically high level of peace and personal security is due to the actions of entrepreneurs and policymakers who want to facilitate peaceful entrepreneurship and not 
from the actions of armies in the past. Yes, we need to respect the soldiers who, in the rare instances of just wars that need to be fought to uh, deal with uh, deal with regimes that aren't susceptible to pacification through commerce, we need to respect their sacrifices. Let's also honor the work of the entrepreneurs who've helped to make us peaceful. That's one of the things I want Canadians to take away from this historical research and from, from the broader literature on business and peace and capitalism and peace. And I think that's actually an excellent place to uh, move to our formal wrap-up to put a, a, a finer point on everything and bring our conversation full circle. I think towards the end of your answer there, you're already doing that, and, that, and that's great. So we can finish that off right now. So in each episode, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word. So Andrew, let me ask, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether entrepreneurs create peace and everything else we talked about today. In other words, if you wanted someone to come away from listening to this with one or two or just just a few takeaways, if anything, what would those be? I would say to someone who's listening to this episode that you can expect over the rest of your life to be confronted with a series of articles in newspapers that discuss countries overseas descending into war. So today we might be talking about the possibility of war between Ukraine and Russia. We might be talking about another pair of countries in the future. In listening to the media report on what's going on on the other side of the world, ask yourself this question. What can we do to help entrepreneurs who live on the ground, maybe live next to the Ukraine-Russia border, whatever the potential fault line may be? What can we do to help entrepreneurs in that part of the region to build peace, to build bridges with economic actors on the other side of the border. That's what I would encourage your listeners to take away from this discussion. So the next time you hear about a war brewing elsewhere in the world, don't think, what should the U.S. do in response to this? Should Canada send a few troops to help the U.S. to find a military solution? to what's going on. Instead, ask yourself, how can entrepreneurs be part of the solution in de-escalating the conflict? That's what I think your listeners should take away from this concept. So for the rest of your lives, dear listeners, please, whenever you read an article in the Globe and Mail about a war about to break out elsewhere in the world, ask yourself, where are the entrepreneurs in this story? Why aren't they able to bring peace to their regions? Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. Andrew Smith, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Okay, thank you for having me. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segang. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye-bye.